private journey with Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ, you, me, Cola. Hi again, everybody. Kia ora, good morning. Well, I just want to reinforce the fact that we've got prayer and fasting coming up in two weeks' time. Uh, so that's going to be Monday, and the whole program is designed to be able to come down here, uh, bring your, your hungry, starved, fasting selves down here, and uh, you'll be able to enter into a time of, of prayer. And we've really put on something for the children as well, so we want them to be able to embrace what it is that we're doing as, as a church community and as a church family. So look forward to seeing the breakthroughs that God will bring for us in this area. But for now, let me pray as I begin to open up God's word for us. Father, as we, as we gather around the centrality of the word of God, we're reminded that this is something unique and special that is a gift from you to us, a gift that helps us to understand what it is that we're called to do as a community and how we're to outlive our faith. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how does that gift of Jesus Christ change everything? So we ask, Father, for your blessing on our word. Open up this uh, scripture to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've called this morning's message um, Garbage and Grace. Okay, Garbage and Grace. Uh, we're entering into chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. And we need to remind ourselves that what's happening here is um, the Apostle Paul is in jail. He's in a Roman jail. And life isn't going very well for him. But by being in jail, he has a freedom now, though, to write. And a lot of the letters we have in the Bible are actually written from jail because Paul has this real burning desire to make sure that the, 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 these early churches, these fledgling churches, are prospering. And in doing so, Paul has left for us, 2,000 years later, a record of his heart and how it is that he wants the church to be established. And so as we go through this letter of Philippians, we find that he's been writing to the people of Philippi about some concerns that he has pastorally. His concern is that this church is so tiny, so small, and so vulnerable that he thinks that it's going to be stolen away in some fashion. And so when we see how faith arises in the, amongst a group of people, we know that anybody who has faith when it is newborn is very much like a baby. Uh, they're vulnerable. They're susceptible, they're relatively weak, but by the Spirit of God, it grows. And so we see that again and again. The small church in Philippi was in danger. It was in danger of being overwhelmed and overtaken by the original Jewish community. One of the things that Paul was always having to contend with is the fact that Christianity came out of a book we know as the Old Testament. Okay, so here's my Bible, and it says New Testament. Okay, so around about a quarter of this Bible is dedicated to the times of Jesus and the establishment of the church. But of course, Jesus was a Jew, and Jesus came to the Jews to establish this new community of faith. And so what happened is this, is that you've got this, uh, it's like a tree, if you could imagine a tree, that has got a root stock going from it. And citrus trees are like this. 
they have a rootstock, and then the fruit-bearing part of the tree is grafted on to that root. You with me on this? And sometimes if you've got a fruit tree, you see wild thorn bushes growing out of the stump of the tree. How many of you have seen that? And you go, how come my orange tree is being invaded by these thorny branches that are coming out of the root? Well, what's going on here is that the, the early church is being grafted onto Judaism. Okay, Jesus came, he was a Jew, and this early church is grafted onto Judaism. But what's happening is some of the thorns from the old way of doing religious life were starting to invade, or at least try to invade, or overwhelm the fruit-bearing part of the Christian faith. Okay, so Paul is very, very concerned about this. You see, the old way in which people did things, living out of the Old Testament rules of life and Old Testament rules of how to honor God, were very, very powerful, powerful in people's lives. And religion is like that, isn't it? If we get in our patterns and we get in our ways, we find that those patterns and those ways are hard to overcome. And it's very difficult to set a new pattern in place without feeling that you somehow owe a debt of gratitude at a minimum to the old ways. But Paul is saying, no, this is indeed, as the Bible says, this is a new testament, a new covenant that has been made with God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we approach this completely wholeheartedly without any reservation as new people starting something new founded in Christ. So the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians talking in chapter 3 begins by saying this. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So what Paul is saying here is that he's going to tell them something that he's already told them. And in some sense, if you've been around here for a while, you're going to hear some of the things that I've already talked about. Why? Because the things I'm talking about are from the Scriptures. And when Paul is repeating the things in the Scriptures that he wants to tell again and again, when we come upon the Scriptures, we're going to hear them again and again as well. And this is the story of grace. This powerful, powerful uh, uh, force of the spiritual world of grace. We're not talking about grace, the name. We're talking about the dynamic encounter that God creates with his people when they realize that it's all about grace. It's all about a gift that is given to us by God. Now, Paul begins by saying this, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Not like that. <laughs> okay, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write to you the same thing again. This word rejoice is a bit of a code word, if you like, for celebrate. And it's a code word for grace, again. What Paul is saying is, when we as a community join together, we should be rejoicing. We should be celebrating. Because in the celebration of praise and worship, as we've already done this morning, praise and worship, singing songs, it breaks the yoke of legalism within our hearts and minds, doesn't it? Otherwise, our faith, if we just turned up here and we didn't have any form of praise and worship, it would be a head knowledge game, wouldn't it? But when we sing, when we open up our hearts to God in that music, something breaks and our whole being starts to be immersed in this thing called worship and in this thing called Christianity. And people say, oh, you know, we go to church and we sing. Why do we sing? Well, if you did, went to church and you didn't sing, your faith would be something that is just completely wrapped up in your head knowledge alone. But rejoice, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And we have this repeated uh, uh, comment throughout Scripture about rejoicing. 
So when we turn up to church, the songs that we sing aren't just the prelude to the notices in the message. Okay, the songs aren't just designed to help you arrive late. Um, the songs are there to actually, did I hit a nerve? Um, okay, they're not the quiet buffer zone so you can sneak into church when the lights are dimmed. They're the ability to be able to break open your faith so that it's a, a heart and head deal. It's going on simultaneously. Yeah? Does that make sense? So if we didn't have rejoicing, we would be left with a, a, a form of legalism. That would just be our head knowledge only. Okay, so Paul goes on in saying this. I'm going to tell you these things again. And then um, let's see where it builds from here. We're going to read this, this verse again. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Right. We've taken a quantum leap from talking about praise and worship and rejoicing. Now we're talking about the Old Testament code. And circumcision was a code word for all that the Old Testament demanded of its people. You see, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament about how we should live our lives. 613 of these, uh, these laws and demands pressing in upon the Jewish people. It did then, it still does today. And people were intimidated by this law-keeping. They were threatened by it, it demanded from them. And so here it is once again, demanding. But Paul is saying, this is part of the rootstock of the faith. How much of this rootstock of the faith are we going to allow to invade the new fruiting wood of Christianity? Okay? So Paul is looking at this uh, at this faith, and he's saying, we have a new covenant with Jesus Christ. Whilst we come out of the old covenant, we come out of that rootstock, we aren't actually part of that rootstock anymore. We are producing new fruit, and we have to draw a distinction. Now, the problem was, is that the Old Testament way of life was very demanding, but there was something attractive about it as well, because when you're told that this is how you behave, you know that your legalist mindset works this way, is that if you fulfill a list of expectations, there's something comforting about that. It gives us a good feeling. It's like we're participating in the faith in a way that actually gives us confidence that not only we belong to the faith, but somehow we're earning or attributing to our own salvation. We're being good for Jesus, okay? And Jesus in return will be good to us, and we will ultimately inherit salvation, eternal life. This is the very thing that Paul was fighting against. Okay? Think of the word legalist. L-E-G-A, list. Think of the word list. There's something about a list in religion that we like. We tick the boxes on the list so that we fulfill our own expectations of what is right and what is wrong. Paul is saying, that's all very well, but it doesn't buy you salvation. So Paul quite openly says, these folks who are going around advocating that men be circumcised as they come into this new faith, he says, they are just nothing more than dogs, nothing more than mutilators of the flesh, 
because by demanding that people are circumcised to prove to God that they are theirs, that they are his, what's happening is they are saying, you have to do something to perform to prove your worth to God, which is an absolute contradiction to the gospel of grace. I suppose the Old Testament law in its worst form is a bit like this. It's a bit like a coach getting in somebody's face, okay, demanding more from them. You can do better. You should be able to do this. You should be able to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And in doing so, the law is demanding, but it takes away or it robs the pleasure of the journey because it is always demanding. It is always intimidating. It is always threatening. It is always creating some form of fear about your performance as to whether your performance is able to meet the criteria or qualify you to earn something and you're not quite sure what it is you're earning because we're in this confusion of fruit and thorns when we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament mixed up. The New Testament is a little bit like this. And let's have a look at another picture. Okay? This is a picture of uh, a Harlem Globetrotter. Most of you will have heard of the Harlem Globetrotters. I did as a kid. They're a group of, uh, of Americans who travel around the world with a basketball. And they entertain audiences and they entertain kids. And what they do is they give people a love of the game of basketball. Love for the game of basketball. And in doing so, people are drawn to this game. And they're saying, look at those skills. Look how much fun they have. And in doing so, people are drawn to the game and they immerse themselves in the game. And in doing so, they become part of that community. And the attitude and the approach and the entry point is a completely different entry point to the demands of somebody yelling at you saying, this is the behavior that has to define you. Okay? So Paul is saying those legalists, those mutilators of the flesh, he said that they are the ones who are getting in the way. And so we've got a distinction here between the Old Testament yelling and demanding at you and the New Testament which says, come and let's join in together out of love, out of faith, out of confidence for what Christ has done for us. And so Paul is here saying, all of these things that uh, you think you should have done, should have achieved, he says they don't count. And he uses now his own story, his own life, to describe what he's talking about. He starts to illustrate this with his own life. Let's have a look at the next verse. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason, reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he says this. Oops. Back. Though I have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I say Paul has five things that he indicates here about his pedigree. Okay? Now we've got a dog, okay? And it's a mongrel, okay? Literally, literally a mongrel. It's a mixed breed dog. But if we owned a pedigree, pedigree dog, I'd better take you back through the papers and tell you what it's, who, whom its mother and father were and its grandparents were, and so it would go on and on and on. What Paul is doing here is he's describing his pedigree as a religious 
leader in his community. And he says this, When I was eight days old, my parents took me into the temple for a circumcision ceremony. As a boy, it had to happen eight days after he was born. So he would have got a name, and he would have had the end of his willy chopped off. All right? That's it. That's what circumcision is. Sorry to tell you if you get a bit embarrassed by that, but you knew what it was anyway. And that was a mark in his body, a mark in his body that he was part of a covenant group. He was a part of a, a special group of people who were set apart for worship, even from eight days old. Okay? The second thing that we, he says is that he was from, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin is a very special tribe because the early kings were Benjamites. King Saul, King David, King Solomon, okay, Jeroboam. It goes on. And so what he's claiming is a unique genealogy of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was right up there. It was, it was a very, very special group of people. And so he's saying, man, I have got pedigree, okay? My genes, my background, my cousins, my uncles, my aunties, these are the people who fulfill, who fulfill old scripture stories. So he's saying, I've, I've got this going on. Then he says, a Pharisee, that's a modern, his day, a modern group of religious leaders. He said he was a Pharisee amongst the Pharisees. In other words, he was an elite leader amongst that religious group of leadership. Okay, so he's starting to really pour it out now, isn't he? And as for zeal, well, he didn't have to defend his zeal because his reputation preceded him. Paul was known as one who persecuted the early church until such a time as he became a follower of Jesus when Jesus appeared to him in a sovereign move on the road to Damascus. And we read that in the scriptures. And of course, he says, uh, as for keeping God's laws, well, I kept them perfectly. That's just a nice summary, as if you didn't already know. What he's arguing for is, here I am counting everything in my favor. I have everything going for me as far as somebody who is a pure pedigree Jew who has done everything right. And so Paul here is celebrating all of his trophies. Okay, all of his trophies. These are my spiritual trophies. This is my spiritual genealogy. This is my spiritual DNA. This is who I am. I have got it together. And then what does he do? He takes this and he puts it all in the rubbish bin by saying this. But, and I love the but, this is a huge but, whatever were gains to me I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul has just built himself right up here. He's like, I am the man. Okay, when it comes to Judaism, I've got it together. But I package all of that stuff up and I walk over, and I take all of my trophies, and I just dump them in the rubbish skip. I dump them in the rubbish skip. Because they count for nothing. They mean nothing compared to the knowledge of knowing Jesus. 
And this is the point of comparison. He says, I've got all this good stuff going on that should deserve favor from God. But it doesn't count for a hill of beans. It's just a pile of mud compared to the goodness of knowing Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, he has been gifted a righteousness. In the Old Testament, he was earning a righteousness. But in the New Testament, he is gifted a righteousness. And he says that right standing with God is far more valuable than anything I could earn myself by having my own pedigree. And this is called grace. This is the free gift that gives us what we can't earn for ourselves. This is the free gift. And all of our trophies are go into the, the rubbish bin of grace. Now, as you, most of you appreciate, uh, I just got back five weeks ago from uh, walking the Camino again. And uh, on our very first day, Peter, my friend who I walk with, we went up over the Pyrenees Mountains and we, we saw a, a couple. It was actually a father and his daughter. Jim was uh, in his 60s and his daughter, Susan, uh, that's not their real names, just in case this gets caught up in recording uh, overseas, but you never know these days. Uh, but, but Jim and Susan were a father and a daughter, and we saw them on the very first day. We, we passed them as they were going over the Pyrenees. The following day, we saw them in a cafe, and Susan had some really big blisters, and she was coming down with a cold. And she said, oh, when I get to the, uh, the end of the day today, I'm going to stop and have a rest. Okay, that's fine. And so we, we said goodbye, as you do on these sorts of journeys. And then just a few days later, we saw them again, and we said, how did you get here? Oh, we caught a bus. Oh, okay. Oh, that's good. How are the blisters? Oh, still not so good. How's the cold? Oh, I'm slowly getting better. And so we would walk on, and a few days later, we'd see them again. How are you doing? Oh, still got a bit of a cold. So you caught a bus? Yeah, we caught a bus. Okay, so how much walking have you done? Uh, two days worth of walking. What's that? Uh, around about 45 kilometers. Okay, that's good. Well, you wouldn't believe it, but we kept running into Jim and Susan the whole journey. And uh, we have to admit, Pete and I, that we started getting pretty cynical because here they were lining up with us in the same hostels, getting the stamps from the hostel owners, which tell you that you've spent the night there, which indicates that you've walked the journey to get there. Anyway, we got into the last 50 or 60 kilometers of the whole journey, and there was Susan on the bus. And so Pete and I were like, this just, just isn't fair. This isn't right, is it? You know, because here we are walking, and she's getting her certificate filled up. And, well, you wouldn't believe it, but we get into Santiago, and we go into this uh, back blocks around the middle of the back streets of Santiago, where you line up and you present your credentials to the, uh, the Camino office, and they write you out a certificate to say that you've done the Camino. And we walk around the corner, and who's in front of us, standing in the rain, was Tim and Susan. We had followed her journey. It was unbelievable how many times we ran into this couple. And we worked out that she had done around about 80 kilometers of the 800. And she went in and she got her certificate lining up and, uh, and uh, they looked at her uh, credentials and they wrote her the certificate, which looks exactly the same as mine, says exactly the same things about what she's achieved as I have achieved. 
I walked every step of the way up every blinking hill, down every rain-filled valley at zero degrees in the morning, at 36 to 38 degrees in the last few days. And she got the same certificate. And so Pete and I were sort of stewing, <laughs> steaming. <laughs> Praise God. I'll take you on the walk next time I go. Then, just as we were sort of steaming and she walks off with a certificate, her uh, father talks to us and says, let's go and have breakfast together and celebrate. Like, let's just do that. So we go off and we celebrate the fact that we've finished the Camino. Peter and I walked away from that time and we looked at each other and we said, you know what, this is like the parable of the workers in the field. Any of you know that? Where they all, even though some of them only did an hour and some of them worked all day, they all got paid exactly the same. And I've got to admit, we walked down that street in Santiago reminded of the gospel of grace. Now, I know I've heard mine and she hasn't. And I'll get over it one day. <laughs> But this is true. I'd rather have what was given freely to me by Jesus than trust in my own achievements. Does that make sense? Yeah. This young woman, her father did a whole lot more walking, but this young woman could smile because she saw this whole exercise as an exercise of grace. And she had a fantastic time. Learned a lot. Grew up as a person, as an individual. She's only 21. And... Uh, and who was I to rob her of that because of my, what? Legalism. My legalism. I saw that I had her in case she did 80, but we'll move on. <laughs> this is the message translation of the verses we've just read. The very credentials these people are waving around is something special. I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master, firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going on for me is insignificant. Dog done. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. Isn't that put so beautifully? Yeah, it just captures everything. Paul knows that law-keeping won't produce peace and confidence about our relationship with God. Because law-keeping will always have the coach yelling in your ear. The simple truth of it is this. Is that, and it's compellingly clear, you can't bring achievements to God and celebrate your own goodness. Um, we turn up for judgment 
with no ability to defend ourselves with our own righteousness, our own acts of righteousness. And this hurts our pride. You know, the most popular song at a Kiwi secular funeral is I Did It My Way. Yeah? I did it my way. Why? Because there's something innately important for us to be able to express ourselves in a way which earns us, commends us, or commends ourselves to ourselves and to others and to God. But God says, you can't do that. When the intimidating and demanding voice of the law goes quiet in your life, then and only then are you in the grip of grace. When the voice that demands, when the voice that intimidates, when the voice that yells, that says you should do more and you've got to do this and you have to keep up this, when that goes quiet, amazing grace has done its job. The gospel in itself is all about amazing grace, isn't it? The cross of Christ, the place we celebrated this morning with communion, is a place that is so unique in the history of mankind because it gives to us something we cannot earn. It gives us a certificate of completion when in our own strength we haven't even walked one kilometre. It tells you that Christ has done the journey for you. Christ has paid the price of your sin. He has died and gone to hell in your place. And now he comes back in a resurrected form and he says, this is now credited to you. This is yours freely. All you have to do is say yes to it. All you have to do is accept into your own life what Christ has done for you freely. This is called grace. This is the gift of God. This is the very central piece of every part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what the church, this is what Christianity, this is what the gospel, this is what the Bible, this is what 2,000 years of church history has given us, is this tremendous gift that we can never repay. And if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never come to the realization that it's about a gift at the center of this whole story, then it's something that I encourage you to do today, to give your life to Christ, that you would receive this free gift, something you can never earn or never deserve to earn, but it is freely given to you. So I'm going to invite the music team to come out and uh, they're going to lead us in a song which I just, I just trust that you will respond with rejoicing. Remember, rejoicing is about putting off the legalism and entering into a, a state where your heart is connected with the story of Jesus. And if you've never given your life to Christ, or if you feel that you've been bound up by legalism and you need someone to pray with you, then uh, we offer you that opportunity. Come to the front and we'll create some space for people to pray with you. In fact, those who, those who would normally be here on our, why don't you come forward as we sing this song together so that others can see you and uh, seek you out for prayer.
Let's stand for worship.